So today, uh, we're in the third week of eight weeks of the book of Ruth. Uh, and we've seen over the last couple weeks, thank you to Bob for preaching. Um, for those of you who don't know, I went to a pastor's conference in Florida, and it was great. Um, I learned a lot of stuff. I also did have a lot of fun, and it was warm. So thank you for that. Um, but that's where I was last week. Uh, but as we've seen over the last couple weeks, this story is not simply about like a love story uh, about the person for whom the book is named. This is a story much bigger than that. Okay, it's a bigger story than that. Um, and so for today, my goal is going to be something a little different. One of the things you try to do when you preach and teach like this is to give some application points, right? What did I hear on Sunday that I can apply Monday morning at work or whatever? Uh, and I, n- I normally try to do that. It's a good thing to do. But for today, my goal is a little different. I want to invite you, as you're listening, I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to provoke your spirit a little bit. Uh, if you walk out of here with a little bit of uh, bothered or uneasy, v- uneasy feeling, I'm actually going to count that as a win. Okay, so uh, look for that as we get going together. So in our first week together, I shared a concept with you uh, about which side of the law one might find themselves on. Right. There's those of us on the hungry side of the law and there are those of us on the well-fed side of the law. Uh, Another way to see that is that there are those of us in society and culture on the more powerful side of the law and those of us who are on the powerless side of the law. And today we're going to see that concept play itself out in this uh, section of Ruth. And we're going to uh, see those two worlds come together as Ruth and Boaz meet. Now, let me just give you a quick reminder of where we are in the story. So it's a recap. Ancient world of patriarchal Israel, right? That's a factor here. And the neighboring land of Moab, we meet a family who's suffering through a famine in the land. It's the time of the judges, a chaotic time. Uh, of kind of um, uprising and tumult. And so uh, Elimelech, the the patriarch of the family that this story is about, takes his wife Naomi and their two sons uh, to live in Moab to find food because they were desperately hungry and poor, uh, or desperately hungry, not necessarily poor, but there was a famine. Then as they get there, Elimelech dies, the husband leaving Naomi a widow, but at least she has two sons, uh, which in their world was a big deal. She is not totally exposed Uh, to danger, but she has two sons. So these two boys marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. Uh, And after a decade of no children being born into this extended family, the two sons now die, right? Leaving Naomi a widow and sonless, the worst possible situation she could be in. She's overcome, of course, with pain and grief. Uh, It seems when you read this text, she is depressed, Like she would probably be clinically depressed in this story because of the grief and pain she's bore. And she realizes her best chance at survival is to return to her land, to return to the land of Israel. Now remember, she's been gone for at least a decade. So it's been a long time. But she realizes that her two daughters-in-law will have a better chance at a life if they stay in their homeland of Moab. Presumably, they're like probably in their, maybe their late 20s. Right, they've spent ten years married. If they got married at kind of that age uh, of ancient times, maybe they're about twenty-six, twenty-seven, something like that, um, to be generous. And so they still have plenty of time to have a family. And so she says, "Go back home to your people and um, start a family, find husbands." Uh, Orpah does this and returns, but Ruth is loyal to Naomi and stays with her. And we get this famous line from the book of Ruth. Uh, maybe the song will come into your head as I. Or as I say it, she says, do not urge me to leave you, speaking to Naomi, or, or, from, or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And this is a key for today. Your God shall be my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs me from you. So these two women return to the land of Israel together. One is a sonless widow, and one is a husbandless foreigner. That's who they are. Both of which make them incredibly vulnerable and, they, and make them needy in this ancient world. Now, there's one detail at the end of Ruth chapter 1 that seems like a throwaway fact in the text, but in fact it's pretty important, right? Because remember, no detail is wasted in the Bible. Nothing's in the Bible like just on uh, Jesus even mentions every dot, every marking. It's important. It's inspired. So there's a detail at the end of chapter 1 here. The very last sentence of chapter 1 uh, I think is really a foreshadowing of God's care and provision for this family, and that's that they returned at the start of the barley harvest. That's, that's not just like a random fact. See, God is able to orchestrate, even in things like the timing of your life in relation to the season of the year, he'll use even that as part of the way that he's going to be faithful towards you. So it's not an accident that harvest is mentioned, and you'll see that as we get into the text today. So I'm going to read you a long section of Ruth, uh, but Paul told Timothy, and through that, all of us to not forsake the public reading of the word. And so this is a good thing for us. We're going to read 13 verses out of Ruth chapter 2. I'll read it aloud. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like to. And then we'll dig in. This is Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. That's the recap. Got you up to this point. Here we go. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Ruth, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. That's an important sentence. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let me pray. Jesus, would you, oh, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your scriptures to us so that we might see what you want us to see? And would you uh, make these words your words and, and not mine? Would you let me get out of the way and would you speak to us as a people? Amen. Okay, so when Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem, they're in incredible need, right? They're coming from a famine, so they've got nothing. Uh, they needed all the normal things that you and I need. They needed acceptance. They needed love. They wanted a family life. They needed emotional and spiritual wholeness. But the first issue 
is food. The first issue was bodily sustenance. You, if, you're, if you're not alive, you can't accept love. Right? You got to be alive to accept the love of a family. So you got to take care of that first. How are they going to sur- survive long enough to get all that other stuff if they're n- not being fed? So for them, and I would say pay attention to the way that this feels next time you're out on the street, begging is a humiliating thing. It induces shame in people. And so as God's people, when we see someone begging, we can be kind and gracious. So begging would be for them an unbearable humiliation, right? They're already coming back as a, you know, a group of people with, for, with a foreigner in it, which is a big deal. But fortunately, they came into an environment where there was law and custom that was shaped through Moses by God, and that law obligated landowners to make provision for people in precisely this situation. So thank God they showed up in a land that had like a social security system, which is essentially what this is. Listen to Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Gleanings are like the stuff you drop. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. Why? Because I am the Lord your God. That's what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 24. When you reap your harvest in your field, and you forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Now, just a little bit of commentary here. This is so interesting. We see land ownership in this text, and we also see care of those who are poor. So a a bit of commentary here on this in terms of how we might think about social care and social justice in our own time. Notice that God did not just leave it up to the generosity of the landowners to do it. He didn't just say, like, be generous and be nice if you want to, because it's all your stuff. No, God knows that we are greedy and wicked, and we always have been. And so he writes this into law, right? God has been mandating care for the poor for a long time. It's not a new progressive Christianity thing. This is in the DNA of who we are. Care for for and justice for the vulnerable, those in the margins and the poor, is mandated by God from way back in our own adopted history as Christians. It's not a new idea. Now, gleaning might not have been much better than begging, because people still know what you're doing. But here's a key. At least it's a little bit of work, and at least it gives people a little bit of dignity. And that matters. That matters. They were able, the poor, to retain a modicum of dignity. They had to go out and glean it. It also gave uh, the rich landowners an opportunity to show generosity in a way that God had commanded and promised to bless, which is also important. So, Naomi should have known about this, right? She should have known about the gleaning thing. She's an Israelite, uh, and so she should have known about it. She probably still did somewhere in the back of her mind, but it looks like from the text she's still too just sad to to do anything about it, to to go to the opportunity that that offered to her. And so it's Ruth, who I'm guessing maybe just learned about this through Naomi and maybe her husband. She... She's the one who has less acquaintance with Israelite law. She sees what has to be done. She takes the initiative. Verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite, it's interesting that it constantly calls her Ruth the Moabite, said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now notice Naomi's answer. She's not like, oh, great idea. I'll come with you. Oh, no, don't let me. Don't, you don't do that. I'll go do that. What does she do? It seems that she's still so overcome with grief that all she can do is say, all right, go. And so if Naomi maybe were in a different state of mind, it might be reasonable to, to say that this is either shrewdness or to blame her for letting Ruth go like this, right? As a younger woman, Ruth would be more likely to catch the eye of the men working in the fields and, and maybe get a favorable response from them. On the other hand, as a, a female and a foreigner, she may have been vulnerable to abuse, especially uh, against and the period of time that we're in in the judges. So this was kind of a chaotic moral period. And so Naomi could be seen as maybe careless of Ruth's welfare. But more likely, I think, was that Naomi was incapable of anything but just kind of saying, all right, go. Like I imagine Naomi is just so overcome with grief that she's just sitting on maybe a piece of furniture or the ground and is like, fine, if you want to do that, go ahead. She just can't. She just can't, right? She's immobilized to act herself. And if Ruth is going to be willing to go, I mean, we got to eat, so go ahead. But what I think this does show clearly, though, is Ruth's strength of character and her determination to support Naomi, whatever risk that may expose her to. This is incredible from Ruth. So Ruth is this woman of resolve. But remember, nonetheless, we're not saying that it was easy then for Ruth I'm sure she was nervous. I would have been nervous. Yeah, I would have been nervous just as a man because I'm in a new place and I'm a foreigner. But Ruth, on top of that, is a woman. And so she would have been careful to stay in the margins of the field, not to... You ever done that thing where somebody gives you something and then you feel like you're getting in their way and it's like, oh. So she's careful not to do that. She, she must have been really, really aware of her foreignness to those who were looking around at her. They obviously knew who she was because remember the worker said she's the Moabite woman that came back with Naomi. And so she wouldn't have been human if she wasn't at least a little apprehensive, a little homesick. I can imagine she's out in the field thinking, man, I really wish the last 10 years hadn't happened and famine hadn't happened and all that stuff. And so um, she, she didn't need to be worried, though, because we know what's going to happen. And at least for today, the story is going to get better for her. And so her fortunes begin to rise with what stroke of fortune or stroke of good luck, right? She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, in verse 3. Now, as the book pr progresses further and further on over the next weeks, we're going to have more and more reason to kind of reflect on and see whether what we're seeing in such events in our own life and in the events here in the book of Ruth are good fortune or what we might call providence. I'm going to let you guess which one I think it is. But this happenstance, this she just so happened, is a really promising moment. As the owner of the field, at least the part of the field that Ruth finds herself in, Boaz is in a position of power. He's in a position of being on the well-fed side of the law. He's in a position to offer her protection, and if he's generous, even material help. He can make her life better. And as a relative, and this is an important part of the story that we'll get to, as a relative of Naomi's former husband, there is likely that he feels, based on the character of who we see Boaz to be, that he feels some obligation to help her. Like he knows this is what's right for him to do. And so much of this depends on the kind of man that Boaz is and whether or not he will show 
any interest in Ruth or even notice her. So a lot's on the line here. Now, the first indication that we're given of Boaz's character is the way he greets his employees. The way he greets his young men, right? Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So it seems that he has the respect of his workers. He's apparently a godly Israelite who has the respect and that there's this double reference to the Lord, which suggests that there may, uh, may, may be more than luck involved in Ruth being in this particular field at this particular moment. Right? Boaz seems to think there's something else at work in the world. Uh, there's more hints of it, too, in the word behold, which carries like the idea of surprise or kind of like out of nowhere, all of a sudden. Right? So no sooner in verse 3 did Ruth happen to arrive in this particular field than behold, so does Boaz. Right? It's not an accident. The landover, the landowner, the relative, and this good, this seems like a good man. Is this just chance? Or is this God at work in the margins? And then things seem to get better for Ruth because Boaz does notice her and he gets curious. Verse 5, Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And I know that that sentence sounds offensive to us, but it's not meant necessarily in that way. He's probably more asking, Whose wife is this? She's of that age. Um, although there's a little bit of, of what's offensive in that. But whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So there's a lot of things for Boaz to think about here, right? She's young. She's a Moabite. She arrived with Naomi, and so therefore she's probably related to her in Boaz's mind. She's poor, which is why she's here gleaning. She's apparently courteous and humble. She didn't just show up and start gleaning. She asked. And she's hardworking. This is probably late afternoon. And so she's been working since morning and just only took one rest. It's like the workers are like, man, she's been working hard. I don't know if you've ever been on a job site, but if you can get the respect of guys on a job site that you're a hard worker, you've been working hard. And that's what she's doing. And so our first impressions of Boaz are positive and so are his first impressions of Ruth. So is this chance or is this providence? That's an intriguing question in this scene. Is this chance or is this God at work in the margins? But there's a real big problem here. There's a roadblock to any more sort of relational stuff going on, and that is her ethnicity, her nationality. Israel's relationship with the Moabites was complicated, and it went all the way back to the time of Abraham, we see it in Genesis 19, especially verse 37. Uh, and it took a really bad turn in the time of Moses. And so as a consequence of the latter, there had been a permanent ban placed on the Moabites from Israel. They were not allowed to come into Israel. The law of Moses uh, forbid it. Here, here's what it says in Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. That would be a great verse to put on a coffee cup. God turns curses into blessings because he loves you. 
You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. So that seems like a pretty clear mandate that Boaz needs to stop talking to this Moabite woman, right? If Boaz, who seems like he's a pious Israelite man, finds himself attracted towards talking to Ruth the Moabitess, there has the potential to be a very complicated situation, a very complicated story. And so the sense that Ruth and Boaz are being drawn together seems pretty obvious in in this part of the story, but it grows stronger here in this scene where we have that hungry and well-fed side of the law kind of interacting together, clashing up against one another. Boaz speaks of reward. The Lord you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord. Verse 12. But Ruth, who seems really aware of her own vulnerability and like of her, at least in an earthly sense, her unworthiness to be liked and accepted by Boaz speaks in this way. Listen, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She continues, verse 13, again, with favor, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And so this is a question from Ruth that's a poignant question. It's an important question in that it shows us the way that God's people, and listen carefully to me now, must deal with loopholes and wiggle room that even laws from God encounter in this world. The fact that Boaz is concerned for Ruth as a foreigner, and in particular a Moabite, is clashing against what he would know of the Mosaic law that we read from a bit ago. So like he's caught here. He knows he's not supposed to allow a Moabite in, and yet she's a Moabite, and and there's something at work that runs deep here. So his concern for Ruth is driven, let's be honest, partly by an awareness that, you know, she's young. So I'm sure that that's part of it. But, but it's also driven by an awareness that not all men are like he is. And here's what I mean. He orders his men not to touch her in verse 9. He warns her not to go elsewhere, lest in another field you be assaulted. That's later in verse 22. So everything is not nice in Bethlehem, right? And that's true in the world. There are bad people in the world who will do bad things. And in particular, there are men who will take advantage of vulnerable women, That's still true, and it was more true then. And so it's against this background that Boaz acts as a provider and a protector for Ruth. He allows her to glean in his field. He gives her food and water. He brings her in sort of from the margins into kind of the the center of his social group, and he sends her home with lots to share with Naomi. And so there's a generosity here that borders on extravagance. It seems almost foolish what he's doing. He even instructs his men to deliberately pull out some stalks and leave them for her, verse 16. And so what we see in this scene is that Boaz is using discernment. He's using wisdom, and he is observing the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. Now, assuming the best of intentions and character from Boaz, which is right to do based on the story so far, it would still also be right to see more in his actions than even Boaz himself sees at this point, right? Or maybe more than he's like letting himself see. At any rate, this is kindness that's not mere, he's not just complying with the law out of obligation. It it seems richer than that. Because notice there's other young women on the field, but he only notices Ruth. 
And so what's interesting about that, which speaks to Boaz's character, is that nothing is said here about Ruth's appearance. We have no indication, at least in this part of the story, that she's beautiful or if she's not, but that seems to be kind of irrelevant to Boaz. What's impressed him is her character. All that you have done, he says in verse 11, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. He's like, man, you're, you're impressive. I'm imp- I want to get to know you more. You're, you impress me. So she's a woman who has suffered and shown really, really strong uh, resolve, loyalty, courage. She has shown kindness to her mother-in-law who, didn't, who told her, go away. And she kind of rightly disobeyed her, right? I don't know if, I mean, I'm getting to the age now with my parents where it's like, I'm starting to go, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not going to do it that way. I appreciate you, love you, respect you, but I'm grown now. And that's kind of what Ruth does here, out of love for her. I hear what you're saying, Naomi, but I'm not going back. I'm going to stay with you. And in that, she was willing to sacrifice her own life. Right? Remember we said the day that they buried Naomi's sons was the day they buried Naomi. And when Ruth says, I'll go with you, that's essentially the day they bury Ruth too. And so Boaz is so impressed with this, and that's what moves him to show kindness to her. In this scene, kindness answers kindness. And so in the, in the pointed way that it's expressed, it shows promise of something blossoming into something more, right? Which, listen, doesn't taint this story. That doesn't make this story bad. God can use the attraction between a man and a woman in order to accomplish his care for his people. That's not wrong. That's beautiful. And so it's not wrong for this story that starts as generosity, as we know, to blossom into something more. But underneath all of that is God at work. Now, there's something else about Ruth and Bo- that Boaz has taken note of, and I pointed it out earlier. And this is really where we see him exercising the spirit of the law and discernment and not just the letter of the law, right? It's this fact that for him has effectively removed her from the category of foreigner and Moabite. Ruth has, because listen, Ruth has not just left her native land and left her father's house. She has also left her foreign gods, Right? He says, the Lord repay you, the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In the, in, the, in the Old Testament and somewhat in the New Testament, there's a category of people we see called God-fearers who have kind of taken on the God of Israel. And, and this seems to be the category that Ruth is now kind of finding herself in. We can almost see the wheels turning inside Boaz's head at this point. Moabites had been placed under a ban of kind of eternal exclusion, Right? There was an immigration ban from Moab. That's what it was. They were banned because they had cursed and seduced the Israelites into worshiping their gods. You see this in Numbers. But what about a Moabite who abandons those gods and embraces the God of Israel? And what if she's also poor, she's also an alien, she's also a widow, one of the very people that the law commanded Israelites to protect? What do we do now? What does it mean to truly keep the law in these circumstances? Would Boaz be wrong to embrace this kind of person? The answer that seems to be forming in his mind and showing itself in his actions is that he wouldn't be wrong in doing this. And the rest of the book confirms that he's right. So here's how I just want to wrap up for today. 
There's a lesson, I think, in this part of the book of Ruth, and it comes to us, I think, from Boaz here. Um, there, I'm sure there's more than one lesson you could draw here, but here's one that you can draw. The reality is that God's, that as God's people living in a broken world, we are faced with some of the same kinds of questions that Boaz was faced with. Here he is trying to work out the right course of action for someone who wants to follow God and is faced with a really complex situation. Should he exclude Ruth the Moabitess or welcome her, given her situation and his own kind of apparently conflicting obligations under God's law. And I'm sure if you think about it long enough, you can think of a situation where you were like, I don't know what to do here because if I do this and I break this, and if I do this and I break this, God, what, what should I do? See, applying the word of God to the messy uh, life that we live requires wisdom. That's why there's a whole section of our Bible called wisdom literature. All of, the, all of God's word is inspired, the full counsel of God we need, and it carries his authority, all of it does, so we honor all of it, we obey all of it. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, all of that. But treating the Bible, treating God's word as a set of absolute rules that have to all be applied in the same exact way in every situation, regardless of the intention behind them or the complexities of particular cases, doesn't work. It just doesn't work work. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees of his day for failing to distinguish between the lesser and the greater matters of the law, right? What does he say? Well, you tithe your spices, good job, but you forgot the weightier matters of the law. They literally were tithing out of their spices. And Jesus is like, great, you should, but you forgot about the weightier things. You forgot about caring about the poor. Which one do you think God cares more about? So the result is a harsh legalism that fails to express divine concern for justice and compassion, which was actually the real heart of the law, and, the, and, and it lays behind all of the commandments. And so the truth is that the ban on the Moabites was given to prevent Israel from being harmed by Moab, either physically, but also spiritually, being seduced into worshiping its gods. It wasn't, that ban wasn't intended to exclude someone like Ruth who had abandoned those gods, taken refuge in the Lord, any more than the ban on the Canaanites was intended to exclude Rahab, who was in awe of the God of Israel, was a God-fear, and decided to risk a ton to be with God's people. And so if you need proof that that's not the intention of the law or that God works despite of that stuff, Ruth and Rahab are both included in the genealogy of Jesus. They are both mentioned in how the Messiah came, who's the fulfillment of the law. And so the way, the, the way that the book of Ruth ends with, with blessing after blessing gives us no doubt about who Boaz was. He was a lawkeeper. He was a good man. He wasn't a lawbreaker. And so in Ruth's case, he is absolutely right in letting his concern for the poor, the alien, and the widow take precedence over the ban on the Moabites, which is also God's law. This is something that we in particular need to note carefully, right? We're, we're right to honor the Bible as the inspired word of God. It is our final authority for our beliefs and our practices, but we have to practice discernment like Boaz as well and knowing how to apply it to the complexities of life 
so that we don't make the same mistake the Pharisees did and end up out of step with the very God whose word it is that we're trying to follow. So our prayer is, Lord, give us discernment. Well, the world is complicated. It's not simple. And so that's my hope for this morning. It's not necessarily to give you a three-step application that's alliterated. But instead, I just want to invite you, as I was writing this, I'm just provoked in my spirit. Like there's situations I can think of in my own life that I'm like, these two things seem to be against each other. What do I do, Lord? I want to just invite you to allow the Holy Spirit to provoke you, uh, to, to reflect, uh, to, to give you a desire to kind of dive down into these questions of how do I keep God's law and God's justice and God's kindness all together in this complex world? Because it's hard. What do we do about war? Do we, do we protect those who are more vulnerable or do we say that laws are laws and need to be followed or how do we understand these things? Lord, give us discernment. What do we do about the issues around life and abortion? Do we care for the women who are coming out of situations where they've had an abortion or do we tell them that what they've done is wrong? Lord, give right? Do we give somebody money for food even though we know they're going to continue to live a life of poor choices and bad wisdom, or do we tell them no so that we can, maybe can help them work their way out of that? Lord, give us discernment. I don't know which way to go. Both seem right, and they seem to oppose one another, and this, I think, is the goal for me this morning of this section in the book of Ruth, just to give you something that will make you a little bit uncomfortable. You're welcome. <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for uh, this story. I thank you for all the things that are in your word for us to think about. Thank you for showing us an example of a person who is seemingly looking to follow after you and yet having to break one part of what you said so it seems to follow the more weighty part of what you said. Would you give us this kind of discernment? Would you help us not to hear that your law and your word doesn't matter? It matters. Our entire faith is based around obeying you and being in your presence and caring about your ways in the world. But Lord, when we get off, when we make it about the letter of the law and not you who is behind it, would you cause us to pause and, and would you grow us in our discernment? We ask you to give us discernment in all the areas of our life, in our family, in our work, as we go out and about in the community, as we interact with people. Holy Spirit, would you make us attuned to you so that you would, in the moment, give us the discernment we need to act in a way that draws people into your kingdom. And we thank you for freedom to gather here, hear your word, and have no fear about doing that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.